Hello, St. Clair Community Church. Uh, around the table, we have myself, David Arnold. Myself, Andrew <laughs> Kompenhauer. And myself, Matt Pumphrey. Uh We are taking some time to do a bit of an extended teaching um, around the Sermon on the Mount. In light of this Sunday for us being a missional family, Sunday. So uh, for those who are new to our community and don't already know, that means we do not have a Sunday gathering. Um, This Sunday, typically, historically, that will take five weekends in the year, usually a holiday weekend, um, and declare that a missional family Sunday. And that's actually been a really important practice for us because it um, keeps reminding us of Uh, how we are formed as disciples and that it is for us at St. Clair seeking to be a family on mission together in our homes, in our neighborhoods throughout the week. And that what defines us as a church community um, is not solely a Sunday thing. So we kind of swing that to the extreme uh, a few times a year and say, hey, we're actually not going to have a Sunday thing at all so that um, we could be reminded of the importance of meeting together in our homes. So uh, we wanted to offer sort of a supplementary teaching uh, in light of not having a Sunday gathering that will keep us tracking through the Sermon on the Mount as we've been doing that since we've come into 2020. Um, And we hope this could be of good help with conversations in your missional family or just in your own learning along the way. Yeah, for for those who are newer to St. Clair in the fall, we had a series looking at what does it look like to follow Jesus in Hamilton in 2019. And we looked at the story of the Old Testament. We felt strongly that to know how to live into the story we're in at the moment, we need to look back to see how God's people historically in their cultural context lived into that. And as we looked ahead to this new year and prayed and prepped about how that flows into the New Testament. We felt strongly that Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are as important and poignant as ever. It's interesting when, having read it for the last few weeks in preparation, more and more, um, if ever there was a piece of text that seems relevant to the world in which we live, in our cultural moment in the West, particularly in Canada, it feels like Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount are important and I think it's good to remember context so he's teaching to a group of people who've been following him Um, he's looked out and realized these are people who need to hear the good news of the gospel so the context is the gospel and what is good news and Jesus has gathered these people and essentially given a bit of a state of the union or a bit of a manifesto of the kingdom some people say on what it looks like to live life in the kingdom of God And so Jesus declares this and the times we can maybe think, oh, yeah, I know this. I think someone said that to me this week. I've read it growing up, but it's almost like a new lens has been put on it. The more I read it again and the more I understand it. And it is just so deeply subversive, I think, into the way in which we live and sets God's people apart in beautiful ways. Uh, I think it's really important to remember it's Jesus is teaching and we can't divorce him from the teaching. I think right at the start of the series we talked about it can be taken out of context and be made some kind of even ethical or justice script, but it's divorced from Jesus himself. 
And so one author that and pastor that we listen to, Mark Sayers, says you can't have the kingdom without the king. And I think that's some of what it's good to remember as we look into the Sermon on the Mount, that is Jesus is teaching and he's offering a surrendering to him as then we live life in the kingdom in light of that. Yeah, and as we've been doing this teaching uh, for our Sunday gathering, simultaneous as the adults, quote-unquote, have been learning this, so too have the children. Um, Yeah, we've been having a good time going through Jesus' teachings. Uh, The kids' ministry, we started out in the very first Sunday when we were talking about the Beatitudes just kind of bringing this picture to mind of putting on a pair of God's glasses and seeing the world the way God sees the world. Uh, and this was kind of our intro into, into this, this kingdom message that, that we, we want to look at the world and, and we see things the way that we see things naturally. But Jesus is teaching, oh, maybe, maybe there's another way to look at things. And so as we've approached these lessons over the past few Sundays, that's kind of been been the lens, pun intended, um, <laughs> that we've been looking at moving forward. Yeah, and we, uh, we talk about family a lot at St. Clair, um, and uh, we believe deeply in it, but maybe not in sort of the idolized uh, form of family where we're saying, oh, um, when we talk about family, we don't mean... Uh, you know, two parents and three kids. And that's the thing that we're all striving towards. And that's the ideal of family at St. Clair. No, we actually mean uh, a bunch of strangers uh, who call each other family as brothers and sisters. And um, so we mean family in the most robust way possible. Uh, but specifically, we wanted to highlight what our kids in our community are learning along the way in this, because we think a lot of ways they have something to teach us. Um, so we are going to attempt uh, over this short podcast to read through the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount together, all the red letters uh, that Jesus has got in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Um, and then we're going to very sheepishly kind of cherry pick our way through Jesus' teachings just to highlight stuff that um, maybe we didn't have space for on a Sunday. Or uh, if you've read these um, this gospel account, you'll realize that there's actually lots of stuff that we haven't um, addressed at all in our Sunday gatherings. We're just trying to do some of that um, with this podcast. So uh, we're going to read for you first uh, um, Jesus' opening words in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is Matthew 5. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your great 
uh, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. Andrew, do you want to <clears throat> jump in and sort of uh, highlight for us um, how our kids uh, have wrestled with this uh, incredibly simple teaching? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we ended up splitting this one over two weeks. Um, and it's definitely a challenge, uh, even as, as I wrestle through it and, and figuring out like, okay, how do I understand this? And then not only how do I understand this, but how, how do we teach our kids these lessons? Um, especially when there's a lot of words that we barely understand as adults. Um, so this, this was kind of the big opportunity we took when, when talking about how God sees the world parents, if you saw your kids come home, uh, a few weeks ago with a pair of pipe cleaner glasses. The reason was because we were trying to remind them that, that God sees things a little differently than we do. And, and we might think, Oh, blessed are the strong and blessed are the superheroes and blessed are the, the really happy people. And, and all these, these ways that we would say like, Oh yeah, this is, this is what's good. Um, but then we look at Jesus's words and, and he turns that a little bit. He turns the ideal of, of, you know, what a, what a superhero, what, what someone that God looks at and says, ah, oh, this, this person I love and this person is loving me well. Um, Jesus kind of flips that on, on its head and reteaches us what it means to be a faithful follower of him. Hmm. That's great. I did see the pipe cleaner glasses <laughs> amongst our, our little ones. Um, Matt had done this teaching for us when we first dived into this. Matt, is there anything that you uh, um, would say again or that you didn't uh, have the chance to say the first time around? Uh, listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, no, I think coming into it, the context is important. Like Jesus sees this crowd who are um, following him, who just make up this group of people that would not be those that you would necessarily think, like Andrew said, at the, the uh, was it Eugene Peterson said years ago, like the Green Beret, like the Navy SEAL Christians, you know, they're the kind of just disparate kind of mass of people just broken and hurting. And Jesus looks out and says, oh, you are blessed. Um, congratulations, you know, is a translation in the Greek because the kingdom's available. And it just turns everything on its head. And Jesus mm-hmm. is saying, oh, the invitation is for you. And so uh, is it Peterson who says in his translation, you know, blessed are you for the first one when you're at the end of your rope? Because when there's less of you, there's more of God. And so I think just that deep understanding that the kingdom is available and it doesn't mean you have to put yourself in these situations. Like you need to go and mourn and then, He's just saying, if you find yourself in that place, the kingdom is available to you. And so I think even for our eyes to see, as much as we, I don't think we want to admit this, there's even a church culture in the West that is, let's look for the people who seem to have it all together and their lives are together. And therefore we can point to them and say, obviously everything's right in their relationship with God. And I think just Jesus comes along and says, the level, the playing field has been leveled here and there's an invitation for people in. The question is, I think, will you receive the invitation? And I'm reminded Jesus' words, you know, the, the well just don't need a doctor, right? Like it's the sick who do. And so he hasn't called the self-righteous. He's called actually those that 
long for that. So, and, and as you read through it, just the the beauty of this and recognizing, oh, we're we could probably all relate to this. And so, actually, I think maybe for some of us, the question is: Is this a fresh invitation to life in the kingdom with Jesus? Even where we know this, but actually. It's moving from our cognitive understanding to Jesus's invitation afresh, even today for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, some theologians um, liken this to say, you know, when it's describing that um, he went up on the mountainside, that this is basically Jesus's Sinai, Mount Sinai mm-hmm. moment. It's this yeah. declaration of this um radical new Pentateuch, this new identity of um, how God and his people are to live. And um, yeah, I, I found it really helpful when the idea was introduced to me and Matt, Matt was alluding to this earlier that uh, you cannot uh, or you should not separate the teacher from the teaching, that it's actually the teacher is the teaching and the teaching is the teacher that Jesus um, living out this way uh, this kingdom way is actually impossible apart from Jesus being realized in and through our life. And when you look at the description of who's blessed, uh, you know, the meek, those who are merciful, hunger and thirst for righteousness, pure and heart peacemakers, all those things. Jesus himself, when you look at how his life plays out, he actually experiences all those things himself. He actually takes on all those things. He himself is the embodiment of the Beatitudes and is the expression of them. And so our temptation to moralize the Sermon on the Mount and sort of try to extract out, okay, so what's, what are the rules and principles that I need to follow as though it's the things that we need to do and accomplish um, is actually totally missing the very thing that Jesus is trying um, uh, to teach us otherwise. And and he actually, Jesus gets into this later in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to fly through this. Let me read the next section for us um, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, about salt and light. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Anyone want to offer a first thought on that? We should never let a pause in a podcast. So I think <laughs> I'd always connect it to the, the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount is this is Jesus's discourse and the danger is when we grab like two verses and pull that out and uh, make it into something in and of itself. So the soul and the light follows off on from Jesus saying, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad just in and of itself is so funny to me like yeah just rejoice when people persecute you and go after you but I think it's tied to that in and then live 
as salt and light in the world, but as you do live in the kingdom and as you enter into this life that I've given you, it will just not be easy. And salt and light, if we divorce that from the bit that says it's actually not going to be easy and there's some challenges ahead of us, I think we missed the point because salt and light uh, are doing things like light um, comes into darkness to illuminate something and salt obviously in the culture in which is written is there for like food and making something just taste different uh, in terms of the food element and for preservative for things as well and so I think that understanding that by living this way it's almost you're not going out of your way to get into trouble but by doing this people won't understand it and the king, the empires of the world will come against you I heard someone say um Sometimes Christians can be, uh, you know, someone said the gospel is offensive. And I heard someone say once, no, you're offensive, <laughs> which I like. So it's not going out of our way to go. We will try and be mean and use this to beat people. But as we live the way of Jesus, it will be in contrast, particularly to the empires and principalities. I also love the idea that salt and light seem to be just everyday items in the culture. And so Jesus is somewhat saying in your everyday, ordinary life, live the kingdom out and so just he uses these normal things that people can understand but actually that people can relate to how they're called to live and then that means something for us i think in our work life in our home life in our neighborhoods how that actually looks like Mm -hmm. yeah see both these elements as well as as providers of contrast um, in flavor and then the contrast of of light and darkness um and with this contrast, I, I think that's where, like Matt, you were saying, we, you, you don't go out of your way to make it difficult for yourself or for others. But whenever you're, you're a contrast in a culture, whenever you're living a little bit differently, then there's going to be those, those rubbing points, those points where, where people are just saying, just, just do what other people are doing. Just, just fit in. Just... You know, and, and it becomes difficult to be a contrast at times. But both these elements, thinking of saltiness and thinking of light, um, just within them, they require difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's what strikes me as well, is that there's a very um, visible aspect to what mm-hmm. Jesus is characterizing in that um, you know, he's saying God will be glorified when people see your good deeds, like the outward things that you do give evidence mm-hmm. that God is real and that he's near. And this gets woven into the whole Sermon on the Mount of how essential it is that we live out the thing that gets worked in us, mm-hmm. that our our outer life is the evidence and the expression of an inner transformed life. And if our outer life isn't transformed, then Jesus is pretty bold to say, well, you probably actually don't have an inner you probably actually haven't experienced any transformation if it's not showing up in your life. Um, and Bonhoeffer says, any community of Jesus that wants to stay invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Um, and so it, it's just, it's a um, probably where we tend to shy away uh, and kind of think very little of how we live our life in, as Andrew's saying, in a unique way to the lives around us. Jesus here is saying, oh, it, it actually um, matters deeply that our life doesn't look like everyone else's life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, kind of reminds me of Newbigin. He has a beautiful phrase, you know, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that our lies provoke questions for which Jesus is the answer. You know, and I think someone else was saying about that, like, yeah, no one's really asking you, oh, no. What is it about this that is intriguing to me or winsome? Then maybe we have need to <laughs> somewhat reevaluate, right? And I love what you said, Dave. I think the danger of, for me in our walk with Jesus is when it is solely about me, I've said it before, it becomes spiritual self-improvement. But actually, when Jesus is alive and well within us and doing the work of transformation, it almost is like it has to spill out mm-hmm. and overflow into people because then it's life for them as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let me read verse 17. Uh, this is the section on f- the fulfillment of the law. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I truly tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is where we're wading into the... The nuanced, tricky things uh, that Jesus says. I think kingdom of heaven is definitely an important thing to clarify, right? So when Jesus is saying that, he's, to the Jewish mind, he's not just talking about life after death. There's some sense of, you know, eternity echoing there, but he's definitely talking about the kingdom of heaven will be life here in the world with God, like God's rule and reign. So how do we live into that? And I think... This might seem really simplistic, but I think for Jesus, he's saying the Old Testament matters. So you said, Dave, this idea of Sinai, because actually, if you notice all the time in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say. So so Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament. So he's not divorcing the two, which I think culturally seems to happen a lot. Like that's just the old, but Jesus is uh, linking the story of Israel together. But I think he's also saying that the language I'll use is the text matters. So, um, you know, he's saying he his scripture was the Torah for Jesus. That's the law. And so I think uh, whatever we draw from this is, oh, the scripture seems to matter deeply and to Jesus. And um, he's coming as well to say, I, I am the fulfillment of that. So if you look in the scripture and the law, you will find me there. But I think the danger is when we... Um, don't grapple with and understand the text. And so for me, it's just that reminder that for Jesus, that the text is deeply important. Yeah, and I think there's a a beautiful tension uh, in Scripture where it doesn't allow us to land anywhere. We we read some and we want to say, all right, Jesus, I can I can throw away all the, you know, the being bound to the law and, and as Paul says, being, you know, slaves to the law, I can throw that all away and I can have freedom in Christ. But then we also see even through the words of Jesus or James that, Oh no, what I'm doing actually really matters. What has come before us through this whole old Testament story, it really matters. Um, and in Galatians, Paul, Paul goes to great lengths 
to say how we are heirs of, of the promise to Abraham and how the law was, was in place. It served a purpose. Um, it kind of, it was our disciplinarian, Paul says. Um, it was teaching us how to live, but it doesn't make us righteous in God's eyes. That's, that's through faith in Christ. Um, and so even just as, as Christ is speaking here and he's redefining what's good, but he doesn't throw out the old either. He doesn't throw out the history. And, and yeah, it's so important for us to realize that, that the Jewish history is our history as Christians as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it relates well to John's gospel where he talks about how Jesus is the word. He is the living incarnate word himself. Um, and so for him to say, oh, you're not going to see the law disappear it's because Jesus in himself is the full representation of the law. He's sort of like the, the thing is tied to him. It's bound to him. It's woven to him. And he is actually fulfilling it because no one else could. He's like the perfect completion of the law. So it's not a dismissal of what came before. He's just seeing it through in all of its fullness in a way that um, Israel can never kind of hold up their end of the bargain. Um, and so to set aside um, parts of the law to dismiss it, as Jesus is saying, is actually to dismiss Jesus himself because he he is the full representation of what the intent of the law is. Um, I mean, you don't, yeah, Galatians, if you start reading Romans, you'll get very lost and confused in all this if, if you wade into the weeds, but it's it's actually some brilliant stuff because then it means we actually read the entirety of scripture through the lens of Jesus um, we see how, like, what all the law was before. You see glimpses of Jesus, and then what we see in the Gospels and the New Testament is the completion of all those things. Um, so it, it, Jesus validates uh, everything in our human experience because he took on uh, flesh and became one of us, and he validates everything that takes place in Scripture because he's the one that holds the whole thing together. So it's why we spent the whole year um, trying to kind of do a fast track storytelling of the whole story of scripture is because it's relevant from right from the beginning um, through to the end. The whole, the whole thing matters for us because the whole thing teaches us something about Jesus. Okay. So verse 21 uh, about murder. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Matt just preached on this on Sunday. So, Andrew, how did this um, uh, land with, with the kids? I'm glad you asked, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> teach us, Andrew, teach us. Oh, man. This, this was a tough one, um, especially with the youngers. Um, oh, it's funny. As we were teaching, some of the, the 
the uh, the young younger ones started doing somersaults and rolling around. So we decided <laughs> let's just play a game. Uh, but but the older ones, the Lions group had a a great conversation around this. Um, the concept of like, oh, how can hating someone be like murder? You know, it's it's really tough. But we talked about how. God, Jesus really loves this family, this body of Christ, um, and and how hate really divides it. Like when you hate somebody, when you are angry, when you are not willing to forgive, you are basically saying that you know you're you're not really worth it. I'm not really including you in the people that deserve love and forgiveness. I'm essentially excluding you from from my family, um, and. Yeah, the kids group had a had a great just example of of, of circling up um, and then pretending that one person was was uh, was being mistreated was was the hated one because of whatever they had done, uh, and they put that person in another room and closed the circle, and that person was obviously not literally killed, but it was as if they were gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, for all intensive purposes, they were gone. They were cut out of out of the family that remained there. Um, and so I think in God's love for his family and God's love for his people, he knows that even, even if literal murder doesn't take place, hate just divides and chops up his family. Um, and that's really sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think... I think I alluded to this on Sunday, but I think in following on from verse 20 about um, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law, I think Jesus is always getting at what's below the surface. And I think the Pharisees went after behavior. And I actually would go as far as saying I think church culture, particularly a certain lens of church culture for the last you know, so many years has done that too. Like if you just do this and behave this way, then that's great. So you're seen as a good Christian if you tick these boxes. And Jesus is always going after what's under the surface because ultimately, eventually, that's what will come out. And so for me, in this case, I think that's what Jesus is going after. What's deep in your heart? And we'll see that as we move on with some of the other topics that are coming up. Mm-hmm. I think Jesus is going after, yeah, What's deep down is actually the thing that's stirring. And um, and you see that, right? And I've seen that in church community where I think I said it about Dallas Willard's line around what are we measuring, right? So you can go, is a good Christian someone who shows up on a Sunday, shows up at a Bible study, tithes? Like, is that the marker? Or is it actually that they're being transformed and actually their life is being changed? So Jesus, I think, is going to get that. And like Andrew said beautifully, knowing that because this is in community and how that affects uh, dynamics. And I think we are just, it's been in my soapbox, we're just so bad at just doing relationship well. We just don't confront stuff. We, In a good way, we don't talk about it. We just walk away or we just, yeah, don't know how to even reconcile. You know, that's one of the biggest parts of the scripture. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness, reconciliation is throughout the text. And then what we do is just not do that. And so I think so much is to be said here for Jesus saying, 
he's just not letting people off the hook to me. I mean, this is pretty clear of if there's stuff going on, mm-hmm. you figure it out. And I use that example of the offering at the altar, you know, like you get to Jerusalem, you're in Galilee, you walk 80 miles to get there and re- realize I've got a problem with someone and Jesus, and he's using that and people are laughing in hyperbole and Jesus is like, no, that's how serious this thing actually mm-hmm. is. But we just don't take that as seriously as Jesus. And more and more the Sermon on the Mount bothers me because I realize how much I just pick and choose what I want from Jesus because I like that bit. And Jesus is like, oh, this is what life with me looks like. And it is actually deeply sacrificial. But in that dying even to my own self and having to admit where I'm wrong or I need to find forgiveness, resurrection is possible. Mm-hmm. That's good. I'm going to read through... Uh, the next two sections together um, on adultery and divorce, and we'll explain why in a second. So this is verse 27, Jesus' words. He says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So now here's uh, the big tease is... We're taking a pass on commenting on this now because it's actually going to be a part of uh, our Sunday teaching in two weeks. So, uh, I was going to ask Andrew how the kids going to come on, Andrew. <laughs> it's like, you'll do the job for all the dads in the church. Oh, <laughs> man. Uh, I, will, I refuse to do that. <laughs> Andrew, very wise, he said, oh, let's shift things around so that the, the lion kids, you know, aren't uh, in the service that Sunday. So that there's maybe a little bit more liberty to... to name stuff uh with the adults so yeah be with us in uh, on the 24th as we dive into that teaching together i'll say one thing because i don't want to do the whole teaching away yeah but again i think it's a beautiful continuation of jesus saying mm-hmm. oh actually what's going in our life and again behavior is a certain thing but any behavior particularly when it's uh, related to sexuality or even relationship always stems from within and even that um that and that is so important to jesus because that fragments relationship and i think there's a lot to do with here like how we view people as image bearers and what we think of people and how our culture just uh objectifies certain people or we have certain labels that we put on people and jesus is again getting right at the heart of this and so i think we need a fresh imagination for this uh, this piece of scripture and it seems deeply important Jesus puts this he could have said anything I always think that as well when you look at the Sermon on the Mount you're like what does Jesus go after in some of these things because that's deeply important to him you know I don't think he's think, he's a scattered professor you know going oh I don't know or, oh yeah I should talk about this I think he's very intentional on some of the things he wants to cover mm-hmm. alright verse 33 uh, this is the section on oaths uh, 
Jesus' words. Again, you have heard that it was said uh, to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All of you need to say simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. This, this would be one of the sections of, uh, of Jesus' teachings that I'm like, oh, I wish we had more time because it, uh, oh, I just think it, it hits home maybe for a lot of us um, if we take an honest look at our lives. Um, Bonhoeffer says that oaths are a sign that we live in a world of lies. Uh, and so Jesus' uh, teaching this just seems... <laughs> <laughs> we uh we have a dog that's keeping watch out the front window <laughs> so <laughs> um more bark than bite though so we'll be okay that was Alfie just <laughs> we're at the pan- agreeing with, who's agreeing with you who's Pentecostal <laughs> <laughs> we're at the Pamplin household so yeah. Alfie is uh is with us um yeah, I love Jesus, the simplicity of what Jesus is saying. Is saying, oh, you don't need to attest or witness to something else. Be consistent. Have integrity with what you say and what you do. And don't you don't need something else to kind of be a proof of that. Um, Stanley Harwas says, uh, to learn to speak truthfully to one another requires that we must learn to speak truthfully to God. That is, we must learn to pray. Um, and I just, I think that's, that's the part of why we keep calling our community to pray is because uh, if we place ourselves in an honest place before God, there's a much better chance we're going to learn how to be honest and truthful uh, and transparent with others. Um, and yeah, I mean, for a culture um, uh, where what seems to be normative is that we're half committed to everything that we do. Um, our words don't seem to kind of hold as much weight anymore. Um, you know, the fear of missing out, uh, or choosing things based on convenience or what best serves us, or always kind of waiting, hoping for the better option, always saying yes to something so that we can be liked and accepted, but, but not actually, um, being trustworthy or faithful on following through with stuff. Um, I think all this actually really matters uh, to the integrity of how we live out our lives with Jesus. And, and it's worth self-reflection on being honest with our own, our own hypocrisy in this. And, and I, it's work that I have to do to realize, oh man, how often do I say yes to something, but uh, maybe second guess whether uh, I can, uh, live out the thing that I'm, I'm putting my word to. Um, yeah. Anyone else want to chime in on this? Deeply convicted. <laughs> Look at this. This scripture does a, I think I'm the same. I think there's a sense of when we, cause often when we say something, I think it's tied to how we're perceived or how we're viewed. And therefore we, think what will someone think of me if I say yes or no to this rather than just having a deep sense of integrity because I think that's what Jesus is getting at will our words follow through in how we choose to live which Jesus' words even a few 
uh, versus go around like practicing, right? And later on, he'll bookend that in the Sermon on the Mount and practicing. And so I think Jesus here is saying, yeah, you, what you say is important in terms of how that's actually lived. And I think you're right, Dave. And I see this in my own life, so I just hold my hands up and say it's an area of weakness for me. But will I, what do I commit to? And I think part of that is, I love your line, it's the, the fear of missing out. Um, but the danger is then we're just not present to anything because we're just all over the place. And so, yeah, our, our commitment to one another. And and also some of that is, I think, our culture of, you know, not to do a Facebook rant, but this idea that we think, oh, we can be friends with so many, so we're so spread so thin that our commitments are spread thin and being committed to a, a group of people that we live in community together and family together, I think is, is really important. And how do we, yeah, follow through on our commitment to things I think is is a word for our day actually and doing that well and hold people that will hold us well to that because I actually think when someone doesn't commit we're like oh don't worry about it but I don't think that's what we think deep down you know we go don't worry about it but actually we're like oh well, that was a bit annoying or that frustrates me or and then back to that uh, what we think of people below the surface like it's all tied together there um, rather than saying oh actually Maybe I was disappointed you didn't follow through on that commitment, but that's just an honest, loving thing to do because um, it thinks it holds the other person up to who they could be in Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see it, a high elevation of, of faithfulness and trustworthiness and the question of, oh, can I be viewed as a faithful person, a trustworthy person? Or am I always trying to play a game of, oh, how can how can I appear like a committed person i don't nobody wants to be flaky but when the reality of it comes we we are flaky and we just try to make it appear like we're not (laughs) much of the time uh and so just this question of like as i'm mirroring christ he gives this example of just like okay there's a there's a steadfastness that i think should be able to be seen in us um and just as we, as, as Jesus will say later on, can trust God with sort of this, this non-anxious, non-worrying trust, can that be said of us um, when we speak? Can others know that, oh, yes, I, I trust that word. That's a, that's a faithful person. That's good. Verse 38, uh, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. A way that I, I heard this um, or read read this recently that was uh, a lens that I had not considered before um, in in this teaching that I think actually a lot of us would be really familiar with um, is that what is really essential is our relationship to time in that um, this is helping to teach us to be a patient people um, that the way that we can be so reactionary and think that we're owed something and we you deal with in terms of your know, eye for an eye. Um, this is helping teach us something of the long game and of the essential nature of, of patience. Um, 
Stanley Harwas says, the same patience that animates those blessed in the Beatitudes, for they are examples of the kind of people who have the time in an unmerciful world to be merciful. I think something else that's really beautiful happening in this passage is, is the break in the cycle of brokenness uh, in a world where, you know, something poor is done to you. And so like in return, our natural response is to do something poor and just brokenness feeds into brokenness um, and an endless cycle. And we see that in the city and Jesus's words here, just, they just end it. Um, something is done. He doesn't even just say like, okay, ignore it, walk away. The opposite is given um, return return love um, for hate. Um, someone takes a little bit, give them more in return. You know, there's this really, really challenging, really convicting message um, happening. And I've, I've been convicted of it personally in terms of, oh, you know, somebody asks something of me or, or even on the street, uh, my response has always been like, oh, okay, you know, this person may... I don't know what they're going to do if I, if I give them money. So it's probably going to do more harm. So I'm not going to give anything, but I realized that it just became an excuse not to see the person. Um, and I think if, if Jesus is doing something here, he wants us to see people not as, as objects of retaliation or of objects as judgment, but as, as people, as image bearers. And I don't know, he doesn't really give us an excuse to walk by anyone. Mm-hmm. God. it's so relational mm-hmm. like all of these examples aren't abstract but mm-hmm. we love the abstract so we live in a world that loves hypothetical scenarios and we get oh well what about this and like oh Jesus is right there on the ground like all of those examples he gives there's tactile tangible you know whether it's slapping on a cheek to mm-hmm. um, giving your shirt to walking a mile in someone's like that is just reality of how we do relationship. And like you said, Andrew, what does it look like to live a relationship in a way that can reimagine that relationship? Whereas all we think is, we do, as much as we don't want to admit it, we live in a, you've done this to me, I'm out to get you. And it's going to tie into the bit later with loving enemies, but it's so deeply relational. And we've, we have to think about that. Whereas I do think our, our theory is so far separated from our practice in culturally. And mm-hmm. um, this Jesus is always pushing us back to that place. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'll read. We'll keep going here as uh, Jesus has plenty more to say. <laughs> <laughs> Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matt, you had preached on this recently. Um, Andrew, how did uh, how did this play out for for our kids? 
Yeah, this was a really good one. Um, I was I was actually away that Sunday, and so I couldn't take any of the credit to myself. Uh, but there were some really good conversations between the teachers and the kids um, because it's challenging. It's it's very easy for kids to understand um, wanting to not love those who are mean to you, those who are um, enemies of some form, and so this challenge to love in return produced a lot of questions. Um, of how can we do that? And actually they, they went really deep, which is where I was glad I wasn't there. Cause they went, <laughs> so is the devil our enemy? Uh huh. So are we supposed to love the devil? <laughs> but, uh, but I think touching on that is actually this, again, Jesus does this thing where he just reorders our mindset. Uh, and along that line, like realizing what, what the true enemy is in life. And it's not people, um, as we see in the New Testament. Like, you know, there, there, are, there are other forces at work um, which are actually our enemies. And when we see people as our enemies, I think it's distracting us from, from the actual brokenness that's going on. And, and we no longer see people as, as Jesus did, as like, okay, you, you may not be following me now, but, but I see who you can be. I, I see you as somebody worthy of love. I see you as you know an an image bearer um and so this i think this gets at like what is what is our enemy and it's it's not people so don't treat people like your enemy Hmm. Hmm. i mean obviously so much more could be said but hearing again these words just feels very poignant for how we've been talking about hospitality within mm-hmm. our own Sunday gathering of if you love those who love you, what reward do you get? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than any others? Uh, and there's just uh, a good uh, call to say, oh, we, we long to be people who give our lives away. And there are big... Um, measurements of that and there are small and and we'll probably keep um reminding us that oh just in the simplest smallest way how we greet those who we do not know even in our own gathering on a sunday actually uh really matters in how it shapes our identity as a community uh would someone read uh the beginning of chapter six for us as the internet has cut out for me here be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them if you do you'll have no reward from your father in heaven so when you give to the needy do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others truly I tell you they have received their reward in full but when you give to the needy do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay. Who uh, would like to chime in on that? Yeah, this one, it'll tie in a lot with with treasures and, and treasuring God and and where we are looking for, for our rewards um, as we were going over this with the kids again it's just asking you know what what is our treasure and here in in this emphasis on on giving um we see this 
this twist. Again, the sneaky things that we do of like, okay, I'm going to give and I'm going to make sure that other people know I give. And so it becomes not about what we've, we've given, but about like what status we can gain um, with it. And Christ is saying like, no, not even, not even this. Um, the heart matters. Again, the heart really matters. Mm-hmm. And in, in thinking about the context of who Jesus is saying this whole sermon to, um, at the beginning of chapter six, as Matthew has structured it, uh, he's talking about giving to the poor, about prayer and fasting, kind of all in one like clump. And fasting, prayer, and giving to the poor were the like three pillars of Jewish piety. They were like the unquestionable practices that defined God's people. And so there probably was like an alertness to what Jesus is saying in this moment that uh, people would not have been aloof to. It would be speaking um, directly to like the everyday reality of how they're living out their faith. Uh, and some of this is stuff that we need to reclaim. It was um, well understood for God's people in that day. And um, uh, we uh, too easily think of giving to the poor as like a charitable option. But for God's people, it was actually an act of worship. It was like ingrained and instituted in their way of life and how they knew God and how they lived out with one another. Um and probably more often than not, we treat giving to the poor as just a matter of convenience. And we do out of the, the perceived surplus of our life. Um, but there's something much more radical and much deeper that I think Jesus is, is trying to get at here. Um, yeah, there's some ba- I mean, you said it really well. I know Toronto Wallhouse, we said the basic tenets and practices of just the average Christian or almsgiving, giving to the needy, prayer and fasting. They're just like basics, which is so funny, isn't it? Because we're like, oh, that feels like you're a real radical Jesus follower if you do know. And he's like, oh, that's just, that's step one, let's move on to the other things. So I think even knowing that, in terms of Jesus' language of when you give, when you pray, when you fast, like it's just an assumed thing, like you said, Dave. And the other thing that I, as when I was reading this through for our sermons and just yeah, praying through it regularly. The word that kept coming to mind is found a few times in the giving, prayer, and fasting bit, and it's the word secret. Like, Jesus says that a few times specifically, like, uh, in secret, in secret, all the way through. And part of what struck me is our inner life with God and our hidden away life deeply matters. And we can try and... Um, convince people or come up with really good articulate arguments about a bunch of stuff but eventually what goes on deep down will come to the fore and I heard someone say recently that you're talking about leadership but that the breadth of your ministry is tied to the depth of your intimacy and I just feel like that is such a good reminder in that even we can be out there saying a lot of things and even doing a lot of things but Maybe it's the reminder of the abiding, the remaining, but actually, like, this secret life. And then we see a model, don't we? Jesus goes off to a quiet place to pray, and Jesus is by himself praying. And there's so much connected to that that I think cultivating that is really important. And it's not, again, back to the Pharisees, it's not just the act of it, it's what comes 
from deep ring, but how we live away from people when no one's looking just seems to be important to Jesus. Mm. Yep. Uh, we're going to, to uh, skip over the section on prayer um, from verse 5 to 15 in chapter 6, only because that's actually what we're going to spend time in during Lent. Uh, is Lent for us this year is going to have a particular focus and sort of thematic view on prayer. Um, and we're going to revisit some of these words from Jesus around prayer um, during our season of Lent. Uh, we're actually really excited for that. We've asked some different people in our community and people from outside of our community uh, to speak into that for us because, um, yeah, there are some... Uh, wonderful people uh, within Hamilton that can speak very well to these things. So anyways, Lent uh, is going to be a good time to look forward to for our community. So uh, let me read for us verse 16 uh, in Jesus' words, chapter 6. It says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disguise, disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I don't know if you knew this, but we twice in the last year have preached specifically on fasting, um, primarily because it's a really sexy topic to talk about and everyone just keeps asking for it. So we keep giving it. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a growing conviction that um, this matters a whole lot more than than maybe what um, typically uh, fasting gets credit for. Um, it's easy to see why it's often overlooked. Um, but we, we think actually there might be something of Jesus's words that uh, is sort of the right thing at the right time for how we think about what the life of a disciple means. Um, I mean, there's, there's a lot that we have said and there's a lot more that we could say. Anyone else want to sort of chime in around, around fasting right now? Well, I think just a reminder that this is a, an assumed thing in the life of a disciple. I've said it in my sermon, but one of the things that most impacted me was Tim Mackey from the Bible Project when in his sermon on fasting said, why is it the Western church in the last hundred years is the only church in history thought fasting wasn't important? <laughs> As in, and in fact, the early church, it was twice a week was common to fast on a regular basis. Um, and I do think sometimes we look at Acts and you have these people who often say, oh, we need to go back to the early church and that's somewhat humorous language. Or then the question is, why don't we see what the early church did? And there's loads of different conversations we can have about that. But I don't think we necessarily want to live like the early church did. So we should, you know, like there's certain things that they did sacrificially that seem to be deeply important to live the way of Jesus. And I think almost we think, well, why is God not doing that as in it's God's fault? And I don't think there's, I think there's a sense of us saying, do we, do we do the same things that the early church did in how we live? And I think fasting is one of them. And it just seems to be no coincidence that prayer and fasting are tied together throughout the scripture. And uh, seeking God in this deeper sense of it mirrors this hunger that's within us for the things of God. 
to come to fruition in our world. And I also think Jesus here and what he's saying is we misunderstood it, right? So here I think Jesus is actually saying it's not this somber, miserable thing. It's actually tied to a sense of joy because it's related to our relation with the Father. And I'd say in my life I've tried to practice fasting recently more than I ever have. And it's the first time I felt like I was doing it out of a place of invitation, not out of guilt. I think that's really important um, for me in my life. And so now, for sure, I'm very hungry when I do it. <laughs> but I do think it's coming more out of a place of, yeah, joy. And it in, it's participating in the life of God rather than this thing of, like, well, I guess I've got to do it so God will be happy with me. It's just not from that place. So. Yeah. A few things what you're saying about the expectation and like reading in, in this passage and this sort of assumption of, of when you fast, when you fast, mm -hmm. Jesus isn't like, so if you decide to fast or if this, but, but an expectation of, Oh, there's, there is something to this. And mm -hmm. I do really wrestle with this passage because it makes me think of also when, you know, Jesus is questioned, you know, John's disciples are they're They are fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? And I'm like, oh, but I'm a disciple of Jesus, right? <laughs> and kind of wrestling with it. Um, but I think there's something Jesus responds with, with how John's disciples, or sorry, his disciples, that they were with him. They were not waiting for him to come. Like they were currently with him. And we are, even though Jesus has come, we are again in that period of, of waiting, waiting, but not waiting. Um, and I think because we're waiting, but not waiting. That's where this joy can come from. We fast because, because we are waiting on Christ to fully redeem the world. And we rejoice in our fasting because he will, because there's hope, because there's, there's reason. And so it's not like, oh man, I got to fast because everything is broken and it's never going to be good again. No, we fast is it's like, okay, I want to remember and to remind myself that Man, I'm hungering for things to be good. I'm hungering for the kingdom, and it is coming. It is coming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a for many of us um, who would have uh, a certain degree of comfort in our life, most mm -hmm. things we can have, we can have what we want, when we want it, how we want it, and uh, yeah, in a world of instant gratification, mm -hmm. uh, the practice of fasting we think it's, it's deeply formational and it's actually a really good, healthy discipline. Um, you were teaching about the importance of it. We're not prescribing it as a rule because um, there are important sensitivities around food and, and, and what health looks like in our lives. And, and for some of us, we have a relationship with food that actually um, fasting would make that relationship more difficult and problematic. Um, we just want to keep putting it in front of us because we think it's um, uh, wonderfully subversive to the culture that we live in and it has a lot to teach us about the way of Jesus. Um, so we're, we're going to keep inviting people to consider it um, as a practice in their own lives. Verse 19. Uh, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Did you talk about this with the kids after Dave? <laughs> like how they can give all their parents back all their <laughs> this, this one is actually probably one of my personal favorites, uh, and I was really excited about it. Uh, ironically, it fell on the Sunday where we're, we're trying to do more worship with the kids, uh, and Jen Bud is coming in with a few others uh, and leading the kids and just teaching them about worship and engaging in kind of a longer period of time um, in song and in worshiping God. So this was this was a very kind of like short lesson, which was which was yeah, kind of funny, but at the same time, it, it just fit because it was orienting the kids' minds towards God, and which I think is kind of the point, um, as I'm sure you touched on in, in your sermon, that that's not money itself, but the love of money and, and the love of things which, which take our minds off of God. That's a problem. Um, so I, I think it fit that we did a worship Sunday on this mm-hmm. Sunday because it was, it was orienting the minds of our kids towards God, and that's mm-hmm. a win. <laughs> It's actually, it's really good because, I mean, if you were to think of what are idols mm-hmm. in our society, and when we say idols, we really mean what are the things that we idolize, that we worship, that we sort of put, um, the things that we think can be everything for us. And I don't think you have to look any further than money mm-hmm. to be the thing that we think can take care of us. Um and Jesus, yeah, I mean, there's so much that could be said and should be said on this because I think we, um, the air that we breathe or the water that we swim in, um, in terms of the value of money in our society, um, is so deeply ingrained um, as the thing that will do everything for us that uh, it actually, I think, takes quite a bit to see outside of that and to. Um, know what fully deserves our worship and our trust. And I think that's why Jesus, he, you know, he wasn't talking to um, a 20th century, you know, capitalist Western society. He was saying like, these words seem so poignant for us, yet he's saying them um, to a much different cultural context. And it is, um, would imagine it was just as weighty and poignant to them. And so he seems to be addressing the human condition um, more than uh, a certain economic system. Um, though I think, this would be my conviction, that I think we have to think more honestly about our economic system and how we live within it and what it is to live the kingdom and the way of Jesus um, in light of Jesus telling us, oh, if you're not careful, you will be pulled into being a slave to this idol of money um, as though it can do everything and be everything for you. His language is just really amazing to me because it does tie in with what Jesus says. He uses the language, you'll be devoted to one. So, like, devotion is an allusion to worship and adoration, right? Like, I think in Acts it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. So, there's this, like, deep connection and, like, we will do everything. And so, here at the end, he says, you'll be devoted to either God or to money. But, yeah, you realize, oh, yeah, there's a devotion that can take place. It is a heart posture. And 
just to be honest and sit down and go, where's my devotion? And it, it is just a re, it's, it's a repentance, but in the right way, like God keeps calling us back to that. And even just the idea of um, just reminding, like my daily reminder is this is not mine. And so if it doesn't belong to me, but the devotion pulls it away from that place and I fall into this trap of all that language, I worked hard for this and here's all the next stuff rather than actually, um, I'm now, my heart's set and is devoted to this thing. And I think Jesus, again, there's such nuance and beauty to the Sermon on the Mount and there's such simplicity. I mean, at the end he just says, you just cannot serve both God and money and that is as plain as day to me and it is again how we view it you know because I think even Jesus' language here is knowing some people who feel like they don't have any money can still be devoted to money and some people who have lots of money can be devoted to God and have not and so it totally is that it's the rich and ruler isn't it to me of like oh what's the most important thing in your heart (laughs) And I think that's where it leads right into the next passage on worry. I mean, it starts with a a therefore. Mm. So we're going right back to Jesus is like, don't be divided, be, be gods. And yeah, as he's saying not to worry and not to be divided and not anxious. Sorry, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But, but I think it just pulls us right back because money is probably, we can all say one of the areas that, that demands a lot of our attention and, and that we even, in my own life, I, I disguise my financial stewardship as wisdom when really I'm just thinking about money more than I'm thinking about God. Um, so just needing to ask myself, like, okay, am, am I giving God my, my thought life? Like, what do I think about more? And if I'm thinking more about, about money, even if it's saving money, being frugal, than I am about, you know, praying for someone, that's, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. That's good. The tie, the tie in is so appropriate. So let me read Jesus words around. Do not worry. And it helps to see it in light of what Jesus is saying about money. Therefore, I tell you, this is verse 25. I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Andrew, why don't you, you offer us the, you know, how the how the kids uh, thought about this? Well, this this was lumped into that worship Sunday, um, <laughs> so I, I'm afraid I can't give up input in terms of of the kids um, aspect. But man, it's good. Yeah. Um, 
I think this, this piece of, of not being able to add anything through worry is a great challenge because we dwell on worry and and anxiety as if it will add a lot to our lives. And the reality is it doesn't. Um, and we look to the smallest examples to, to see where God provides, um, this, this like, uh, Jewish, uh, rabbinical argument of, of bringing up something small, like the lily and then saying like, okay, if this, if this is important, how much more, how much more are you important? And in this passage where, um, a lily, a bird, um, if, if they're loved by God, if they're provided, um, how much more can we trust? Yeah, I mean, Jesus is, the beauty is he knows people. So he's saying, do not worry, because he looks around and thinks there's a bunch of people here worrying. So that's encouraging. You know, sometimes we we forget Jesus' understanding of who we are. So there's this sense that, yeah, a lot of us can have a certain sense of worry and anxiety, and Jesus isn't almost going, oh, you people worrying. Uh, I think he's recognizing that that's part of the human condition. And I've often seen, whenever Jesus says, therefore, it always reminds me, as Andrew said, what went before that. So there's treasures, but before that is prayer, fasting, and giving. And I can't help but think if you've, Jesus is maybe masterfully saying, if you've participated in those things, when you get to this point, you are, your heart and your soul is in a different place. You know, I think if you participate in those things, it allows you to be present to understand who God is. When you recognize it's not all yours, but you're in this place of asking your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm fasting, so I'm hungering for God. Like some of that then puts me in a place of then going, so what about life? You know, and to some degree, I think we we can divorce them again, like from each other. But I think Jesus is saying this inner life, this life with me that you cultivate, the way you do these things allows you to be present in such a way that you can seek first the kingdom and everything else will fall in, into place. And so I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of language around like mindfulness in the world. And I think Jesus is saying here, oh, prayer is mindfulness to me as you do that because prayer reminds you right out of the gate our father well actually that reminds me of identity who I am who God is you know who are in heaven how um, I be learning your kingdom come your will be done so when I recognize oh, all of this is yours it all belongs to you I find my place in this when we get to this passage it's almost like Jesus said do the pre-work and then come to me not that you don't feel worry but there's something about that that I think I feel like Jesus is trying to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's so much that could be said and should be said ar- around this. We hope as a, as a community of people to be a non-anxious presence in the mm-hmm. world that we're not caught up and um, sort of captivated by the worries of our own life. We actually want to be people with a sort of spacious presence who uh, see their life as not as their own, but they can actually take on the weight of other people's things and of the world. Uh, and it's um, less about us and, and more about others as this like basic posture of how we move through the world. And um, yeah, we just, we think there's incredible depth to discover in Jesus' invitation in this and um, to see our world as a, uh, 
as an anxious place is probably a, a pretty fair observation these days. Uh, and so to be non-anxious people, people who um, don't unnecessarily carry worries in their life, um, Jesus' words probably couldn't be any more beautiful and simple uh, as an invitation to something better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like Andrew said, just to close that, like the deep care of Jesus for people who worry, like the idea that your heavenly father like looks after them. Like there's this sense of, oh, we recognize this and it's not hey, you person who's anxious and worries sort it out. It's like, oh actually it's a reminder of the heart of the Father towards people. So <clears throat> I think Jesus is amazingly gracious in these words. So. And I think he's also just reminding us that that God sees us. And as we look back at what he's been telling us in terms of like, okay, you're doing good. But remember that God is the one who sees this. Don't do it for man. You're doing, you're, you're fasting. God is the one who sees this. And here as well as, as we go through life and we're worrying, um, I think he wants to shift us and remind us that God sees us. And, and within that, I think we can shed the expectations on our lives that are not God's, but that is just the world telling us, okay, by this point, own this house, have this, have this. And, and it brings a lot of anxiety because our, our savings account isn't where we think it should be this or that or this or that. And there's an invitation to just shed it and, and to say like, Hey, you, you're seen by God. You are seen by God. That's good. It's very good. We're in the home stretch. We're going to look at chapter seven. Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all that time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to the pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Well, we're probably conveniently at uh, the tail end of this podcast, and so we can't actually do good justice <laughs> to some of these tricky parts of what Jesus is saying. Um, but quick, quick thoughts on uh, on this section. So at the start, uh, we sometimes divorce text from the original speaker and I think this is one for like the, the language of do not judge we have banded around all the time which basically is veiled as uh, don't tell me what to do hmm. and or I should be allowed to do what I want to do and uh, I think the challenge with this there's definitely a judgment piece of we should uh, well Jesus does it really well we actually have to look at our own lives of what is happening with our life with God before we even enter into any sense of dialogue with others which I think is a deep challenge but I don't think we do that I don't think we even look at our own lives but then with it I don't think what Jesus has done is shown a way to live which I find deeply interesting you know so our culture takes it as don't tell me how to live and Jesus has said oh here's how I think you should live life in the kingdom and we should allow that life to ruminate with others but yeah I think this 
reflecting on our own stuff. Just when I look at, I mean, use social media just as an example, like the our own work of owning our own stuff and looking at our own um, life before we dive in. I just think is, again, I think Jesus is brilliant in this. Like, oh, before we go looking at others, how about we reflect on maybe the work of repentance that's needed in our own life. And then I think, again, it's tied to relationship, right? So I don't think Jesus is saying we shouldn't be in relationship and challenge one another in godly and beautiful ways. I just think it's how we how we do it. Um, and I think, yeah, we've just, it is hard because I think we just misconstrued this and I just don't think we fully understand mm-hmm. what is fully going on here. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, what strikes me is um, Jesus using the uh, example or the sort of imagery of, of sight as being the like thing that he wants, the way in which he wants you to understand uh, the place of judging and that, um, yeah, our, as we judge others, we, we become blind to our own stuff. Um, and and the, the like really basic... Um, posture that we have before God is is a very confessional one of acknowledging and owning our our own stuff, and so Jesus, it just seems like He's pointing us back to say, "Oh, don't get things out of order here. We first lay ourselves bare before God, and we confess our own sin. And if we're ever missing that step, then we need to go back to square one and start with that again. Like we're we're ne- that we never." Um, have sort of conquered or figured out or just made right our own shortcomings. We always have to live through that lens because it uh, reminds us first of the grace that we have received, and then it gives us then grace to offer to others. And if we're bypassing our own need for grace, then we're probably not going to be able to offer other people mm-hmm. grace. And I think, I think that's what Jesus is trying to save us from in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're saying that imagery of sight is really powerful and a really powerful narrative throughout scripture, beginning with the very beginning, like God sees what he created and it was good. And then right off the bat, you get people seeing and then deciding what is good uh, and just kind of usurping what, what God says in favor of what we say. And so this, this idea of looking at others and being like, I know what's good. I know what's good. You need to like get in line with what I think you need to do this. When that posture of humility of realizing like, oh, okay, hold on. Like, am, am I submitting myself before God first and foremost? Am I asking him like, okay, God, do you see, do you see good in my life? How, how can I get in line with what you're saying? How can I? man, just see the world the way you see the world. And, and just to be cleared and, and realizing that we do, we do all have a speck in our eyes um, because we, we live with experiences and I just, man, I just see, I know we kind of skipped over prayer, but just the importance <laughs> of prayers. <laughs> so, so much because we're just on our knees before God saying, God, I, I don't want to go through the world as the, one deciding what's good in my life for others. I just want to get before you and, and just listen and say like, okay, what do you want? What do you want? That's good. Verse seven. 
Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Well, that's the... Jesus, Jesus, mic drop moment for us in all of this. This is like it feels like he's just built up a whole bunch of momentum in this teaching, and then it's just kind of like boom. There, it, it, you know, it, it all comes down to this. Um, we tried to highlight uh, in the sermon on do not worry about um, really at the like foundational level. Um, what is tied to our worry is is often fear and 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 the things that we fear are um yeah points or opportunities um to trust uh and i i think this is yeah what i i would be pretty convinced of that the the greatest question that that we have to answer in our life is um do i really trust god is god really as good as he says he is and um Jesus is is saying here, yeah, like he's just he's actually way better than you um, could hope for. He he's good beyond measure. He's trustworthy, so therefore you can ask him for things. Like there's a permission that's granted that um, uh, is pretty incredible. Um, yeah. I I think that this comes after the other teaching is really important as well. Because, because hopefully our minds have been reoriented towards Christ. Because I think of other Bible passages where it says like, oh, you ask and you don't receive. Why is this? And it's because you're asking for the wrong things. You're asking for things that are not, not of the kingdom. And, and Jesus is doing so much in this teaching to, to orient our minds towards the kingdom. And, and just as we saw in that don't worry passage, that one we are, one we are, doing that when we are seeking God, seeking his kingdom. And then we ask within that, we can say, okay, like God's not a God of scarcity. God's a God who, who holds, you know, these, these storehouses far greater than I could ever hope um, to access or to, 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 sorry, to build up on my own. Um, But it really does require this, this continual reorientation of, okay, am I putting on, God's glasses. Am I seeing the world the way he sees it? So that when I ask, I know I'm asking for kingdom things, for things that are important. And like you were saying, for things that are better, it's not just that it's, that it's of the kingdom of God. So we have to do that, but it's actually better than anything else we could ask for. Mm. Yeah. I think what you said, Dave rings so true. It's like identity, relationship, trust, like the language of children and father and good gifts and, yeah, I think it's the understanding of who do we think God is and how do we view him towards us. Like, is it, I remember someone a few years ago saying that a wise counsellor would meet with people and you would ask them, what do you think God thinks about you? And the number one response from Christians is disappointed. 
Mm-hmm. I think she says something to us. And yet Jesus says, well, that's not what the text says. Like, he's not like that. And Man- I think it's Manning who says, you know, Jesus is too busy loving you to be too disappointed in you. And and then out of, I think Jesus is clever because out of the overflow of that, do to others what you would have them mm-hmm. do to you. And I think that, isn't it like that's called the golden rule? Um, and I just think that's the reflection when we know that then it allows us to do to others what you want them to do to you. And just even how it's it's really Jesus saying, you know, love God, love your neighbor. And they always tie together. And our love for God always flows in our love for neighbor and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read the the rest of the Sermon Mount in kind of one reading. It, it um, depending on your translation, is divided up in different ways. But um, the, there is sort of a thematic kind of like push uh, that Jesus has in this. So we'll, we'll finish with one last go here. Um, this is verse 13. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are um, ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain will come down. And streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And then verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Any closing remarks on that last little run of Jesus' teaching? What a way to end a sermon. Well, like the rain came down, trees rose and the winds blew and beat against a house and it fell with a great crash. Like that's how Jesus closes out. And so I think there's some sense of him. I mean, before he said that well, but they, like you said, there's this progression in this final part of the sermon on the mountain into, we've said it a lot already, but this sense of like uh, how we live out what Jesus has said and this idea that are we practicing the way of Jesus and that is a inward life that reflects outwardly I think some of this the idea that um, anyone who says to me Lord Lord uh, 
not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And, but that seems, there's some tie to that being the true and the false prophet. So I think there's some connection there to like uh, actually leaders within the church. Um, but, but either way, I think there's definitely some idea of um, Jesus. I think it seems to me like the end is just some gravity around this. I mean, the last bit is when the storms of life come. So Jesus is very aware that life will throw out some challenges, but how we live when the pressure is on and how we live when uh, our life is, um, yeah, in a difficult spot or even just life in general, there seems to be a way we live out of that space. And Jesus seems to, I think he just holds out some healthy warning maybe for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when we hear the words of Christ, um, and we realize, oh, these are really radical. This would, if everybody did this, this would be really awesome. And and we see in them a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven, and we see in them Christ's invitation for us to to know the Father as Christ knew the Father, and to live on this world in a way where where we're known by the Father, where He's the one that sees us, and and our identity is is being seen in Him. But then you read these these final words of Christ, and um, elsewhere it says, you know, everyone who hears my words but does not do them is like someone who walks up to a mirror and sees his reflection, goes away and forgets it. And it's like we walk up to a mirror and we see ourselves and we, we hear the words and we go, oh, yeah, my identity is in Christ. My identity is is a person who has been seen by God. And then we walk away and we kind of decide, okay, but I don't actually want to do that. I don't want to do that. And we divorce the teacher from the teaching. And we're like, I like the teacher, but I don't like these. And we just begin to forget. And we begin to forget where our identity is. We begin to forget. And we begin to worry. And we begin to just like, just revert back. So I think Jesus is like, okay, hear and remember and remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe to to wrap things up with a final thought, it it's these words of Jesus that are actually quite very definitive for us as a church community. Um, if you've been around with us long enough, uh, you'll probably more often hear us talk about our practices than you will um, see us um, sort of waving around a, a certain doctrine. Um, it's not because we don't care about doctrine. Actually, we, we have deep theological convictions. That's exactly why this conversation is happening right now. But we're just leaning in uh, to Jesus's words here and saying, oh, but you could have all the knowledge in the world, but if you don't put it into practice, it is of no good. Uh, and so we try to hang our hats on these practices of prayer, scripture, generosity, hospitality, and Sabbath, because we think they uh, deeply form us in a, in a world that would uh, pull us in another direction. And, and these are like identities for us in how we express the life of Jesus as a community. And we're constantly trying to encourage each other in these ways of learning how to put them into practice. And we're we're trying to do it in simple terms. It's It's why a missional family is just so literal that it's trying to be a family on mission, practicing the ways of Jesus together because, well, we just think Jesus was serious when he said, put my words into practice. Um, So uh, 
We hope this is helpful. <laughs> it's longer than any of us thought it would be. Yeah, so, <laughs> 24 hours. Yeah. Feel free to uh, listen. <laughs> so we've enjoyed ourselves. <laughs> we hope you have as well. Um, yeah, uh, we trust this uh, will be of good use to you along the way. Peace. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>